0: Hello and welcome to Scott Rock Where your hosts From Climb Scotland Robert McKenzie And me, Cal McBain Catch up with climbers Every two weeks Who have different epic tales to tell us We hope you enjoy the show And remember When you're out climbing Be safe And do your buddy checks Well, that gap was a bit longer than we thought. Me and Robert were maybe a bit too optimistic that we had enough episodes to last any busy periods. We were wrong, but thanks for bearing with us. We're still here trying to scrabble around the big C word and bring you all some more interviews. On today's show, we've got Kevin Howitt. Now I first met Kev when I started at Climb Scotland four years ago. And I'm pretty sure since then, every time we've been in the office or we've worked together, 95% of our chat is about climbing, rather than anything to do with work. Despite originating from Northumberland, Kev has been a bit of a staple of the Scottish climbing scene for the best part of 40 years? Probably best known for his pretty strong opinion on climbing ethics, which we touched on a bit in this interview, but with plenty of really, really great stories from the golden era of Scottish trad climbing. And yeah, if you don't know what glubbing is, then listen on but yeah so you i suppose you kind of started climbing in northumberland didn't you you're always quite strongly at least for me associated with like scottish climbing but really you're a you're an invader up here i am yeah not a, <laughs> not from here but i'm a raider a, yeah northumberland <laughs> raider so yeah how did you maybe how did you kind of get into climbing and then maybe how did you end up in scotland you're quite an interesting
1: mm, yeah um did you have climbing family? or No, you? no, my mum and dad. In fact, uh, I took my mum climbing uh, at Corby's Crag, actually, to show her what we did. And I was doing it properly with a rope and showing the gear and everything. Yeah. And I showed her, fall it. I, you know, I fell off so she would see what happened, how safe it was. Um, you didn't deck out doing this, did you? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, so I took a little drop of my, of my mate, uh, John Griff, who I started climbing with, he believed me. And I'd, I looked down at my mum and said, you know, see, it's okay. And she'd fainted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding you, she fainted. And that, after that, she didn't want to know. And she'd never been interested in my climbing since <laughs> just... then. that I started with John Griff, because he, he went to Tech College um, in Ashington, in Northumberland, Thumberland and uh, joined the climbing club. So he got... He managed to get hold of a hawser laid rope, one, two, two steel carabiners. What year was this as well? Is this like six, 70s? 70s. Yeah. 1973.
0: So this was kind of before all the big tech, like, was it 80s ropes, proper ropes came in and then...
1: Well, yeah, you, you were starting to get better ropes late yeah. 70s. You had proper ropes coming in, um, as opposed to horse laid but... They I mean this was a, a, a college, you know, they just had some old kit. Um the only runner we had was a moak. <laughs> huge great moak, which was a it's big, like a nut, isn't it? Like a massive big nut, yeah. yeah. On wire. Um one carabiner. And uh didn't have harnesses, just had waist belts. Yeah. So we went to my local crag in Northumberland was a place called Jack Rock, which overhangs the river, the river Coca. And we went there and didn't have a guide, didn't have a clue. Wandered down, saw the line that we thought, that ah, looks quite good and it goes up to a roof, swings onto a buttress and you could pull through the roof and go up. So I climbed up. John's belaying me around the waist, you know. And uh, I got to this traverse from underneath this big roof and I fiddled in the, the, the Moac, this big Moac, and it was actually quite good, but there was no extension on it. Didn't have any extenders or anything. Didn't have slings. So I clipped the carabiner in. I think, How do, what do I do? How do I do this? I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So untied, so I'm hanging on <laughs> top of this groove. Untied, put the rope through the, the carabiner. Tied back into the harness, the, you know, the, the waist belt. Traversed out, thought, oh, that was quite good. Pulled over the roof. Tried to pull up and couldn't because of the rope drag. <laughs> So I'm trying to pull the rope up and get more and more pumped on these huge jugs above the roof. Yeah. In the end I just had to run time so <laughs> Did it did it have like an
0: opening carabiner and you just didn't know how it worked or was it like a solid
1: It was solid steel carabiner. Okay. Um but I couldn't work I just didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. It it was a screw gate. And I didn't understand it. All oh, right, right,
0: so you could open it up. I could just, have opened yeah.
1: it up, had I known, but I couldn't work out how to do it. So <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> we, honestly, we were stupid, utterly stupid. But, you know. And I, th- I think after that, we just went soloing. Everywhere we went in the Thumberland we went soloing. Uh, for at least the first couple of years. But I, how did I start? How did I come up here? Oddly... The reason I came up here was for winter climbing. Was that with the uni kind of like mountaineering club? Yeah. yeah. Um, uni Club was really active, Exeter Uni did lots. Um, and I think actually they were the ones who really got me into adventure climbing. North Devon, you know, the coast climbing in North Devon, it's on calm, it's loose, it's scary.
0: Exeter it is like south southwest coast of England, isn't it? Like right yeah. at the, almost at the bottom. Yeah, it's Devon.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, I had total epics to start with, off with. I know he died several times, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, because we had no instruction. You know, yeah. Tip of the university club. You know, here's a kit, to go climb, you know, you have a clue. Um, but I don't know, I think it actually helped an awful lot. Yeah. Because you learn quick if you don't die. They. I remember there was one trip, um, the President was a guy called Dave Tempest, Temmy, who was, we still see. We all meet up every year. Uh, the, the, that year, two or th- well, probably about three or four years worth of um, climbing club members from Exeter. We meet up on a regular basis every year. So it's great meeting them again. But Temmy had uh, organized a trip down the south, south coast of Devon, um, to Daddy Hall, and uh, he gave us an idea of where we could go. And he pointed me at this route. I had some kit, some really mediocre bits of kit, stuff, harness this time, <laughs> um, some proper extenders and proper carabiners I knew how to use. So you'd worked out screwy it worked. Yeah, <laughs> I had <got> stuff. <assistance. laughs> <laughs> and uh, he pointed me up this thing, this crack in this little overhanging wall. And I just remember getting utterly pumped. And I, I was, as I pulled over the top, my arms were screaming. I could hardly keep my fingers crimped. They were opening up on every move and I, I just fought my way, pulled over onto the ledge. I lay there sort of panting like hell and my arms were killing me. And I looked over to say, tell my mate I was all right. And every runner I placed had fallen out. <laughs> <laughs> so that, well, that was a very early memory. Yeah, so quite scary. But it was great, you know, we got, we got to do things like... I got really into it, moved to Chudley... In Dartmoor, climbed all the routes in the uh, the crag at Chudley, and we didn't know what grade we were climbing, because the grades were, like, stupidly easy, well, stupidly undergraded then. Was this back, to, back when VS was kind of the max grade? And uh, no one really it things one. were being given extreme like X-S.
0: Okay, so that was before kind of E1, E2, E2 yeah. E4. Oh, yeah. So, so <laughs> this
1: was 1977.
0: Right. You don't know whether you're getting on an E1 or an E6. No, I mean, <laughs> I look
1: at the guidebook now for Chudley, and we were doing E3s. <laughs> I had no idea.
0: I suppose that's a good, it's almost like ignorant progression, isn't it? Like, if you don't know how hard it is, then yeah, you're more likely to get on it. Yeah. Do you think, I always think this about climbing a little bit. I'm sure me and Robert had a big chat in the car that people would climb a lot harder if you just scrubbed the grades off the bottom of all the routes. Because you'd naturally, you'd, just, yeah. you'd, try, you'd have a look at it and you'd be like, it looks like I could do that. Yeah. And you give it a go. But when you give it a hard grade, like a yeah. 7B, or if you're outdoors but it's like an E2, and you climb HPS, you're like, oh no, it's too hard for me. Yeah. But yeah. maybe you could actually get on it and be totally fine.
1: Well, I think that's what we did, I mean, basically back then. Um, I mean, uh, there was all sorts of routes that we did. I remember doing a thing called Terrapin at, at uh, Baggy Point the north coast of Devon. It, it was only given excess um, but we knew it' been it was so, supposed to be quite hard because the guy who did the first descent was quite a hard climber um, but I saw uh, a, a guy called Peter Sullivan who was really active down there doing it once I watched him climb it and he was banging pegs in I remember seeing him bang a peg in and his mate took it out it took a, a couple of them and I thought I, I think I can do that. It's a slab. I'm not going to get pumped. that was quite good on slabs, so I give it a go and I got up it. There were no pegs because he took them out. I didn't realize so much. I, another one of these stupid thinking things. I didn't realize the pegs had gone completely, yeah. <laughs> and I should have carried the pegs. So I mean, like Terrapin now, I think it gets E three five five C five B. Did the pegs go back in, or did you? No, did I don't think the pegs there? are there. Ooh. So I mean. it it felt pretty goy, but I did it.
0: Do you think, I, I suppose in the same, the same idea in not knowing the craze, do you think having worse gear kind of makes you a better climber in the long run? Because I was thinking back to you talking about putting that Moak in, where if that's all you've got, you probably get pretty used to just running out, and when you're really, 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 really scared, that's when you put a nut in. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe nowadays when you have like a full rack of cams and every size <laughs> of nut, an offset nut... And basically, whatever crack is in front of you, you'll probably be able to find something that fits.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm pretty certain climbing with minimal gear back then, not knowing the grade of routes, just having a go, meant that I learned very quickly my own abilities. Yeah. I knew where my limits were. I'd been pushing my limits, so I'd been possibly going over it on occasion, but got away with it. So I learned quite quickly over the first couple of years climbing, you know, what, what I was capable of. And I didn't mind running it out above gear at all. I've, I've never had a problem about running it out above r- protection. Yeah. Never. I, I, what I find mo- much harder is well-protected, brick-hard, technical, strenuous pr- routes. Okay, yeah. I struggle mm-hmm. on them. Because I'm not strong. So, yeah. It, it certainly helped. But I mean, I, you know, it wasn't wind, it wasn't summer climbing that brought me up here initially. It was it was winter stuff. But um, but I did come up actually. Having said that, I came up with John Griff and we wanted to go to Sky, and uh, and I'd already met Dave Cuthbertson, Cubby. He he turned up at the the university bar with a friend of ours.
0: That's in Exeter.
1: Yeah. Where? But Cubby's... Is he, was
0: he not born and raised in Scotland? Yeah, exactly. How did he end up in a random pub in Exeter? Because
1: back in the 70s, Cubby was wandering around the whole of the UK, repeating all the hardest routes and not telling anybody. No. Oh,
0: kind of like a, almost a Dave macleod Dave MacLeod of the 70s type
1: character. Yeah, totally. Character. And he was... We we're sitting in the U-bar having a beer and our friend Paul turns up with Cubby and introduces us and everyone. And we'd never really heard of Cubby. And... Uh, we were chatting, and he said, "Oh, what have you done?" And he went, "Oh, I've I've just been, you know, what, going around. Um, I've just been going around all the southwest to check out some of the routes." And he'd been to the Peak District, and he climbed all the hardest D fives in the Peak at the time, absolutely, you know, storming them, making them easy. And he at uh, in Devon, he did uh, a route called Zuma, the Bigaret. And it had a real reputation. I think it was done originally by Pat Littlejohn. He was given E4 now, I think. Maybe he's E5. But back then it was like, you know, it was the route to do in the Southwest there. And they said, sort of, you know, what have you done? He said, oh, I did zoomer. Really? I did zoomer? Yeah, yeah, it's all right, it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly realised, hell, yeah, Cubby's good.
0: <laughs> it's like the art of downgrading, isn't it? You do it and then you say it's easy.
1: Yeah. So he basically then said, you've got to come up to Scotland because it's much better up here. (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. I was completely convinced by him. Um, And we came up, met him at Fort William and he was working in Neversport and we were, the idea was that we'd maybe go climb with him, but he was busy working. So we're going to head up to Skye, and uh, he's talked about all these routes that we should go and do and. But anyway, we went to Sky and it rained, and we had a hard, horrible, miserable time with the midges and the rain. Came it sounds back. like quint, quintessential Sky yeah. journey, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, it was the seed had been sown, and then you know, university club were wanting to come up on a regular basis in winter, and we came up and did lots of winter climbing, and then I moved up. And I moved up for the winter. Yeah. You know, I came up to go. Um, I wanted to do all the big fives and sixes on the Ben and Maggie, and yeah, so that was the, that was the pull.
0: Oh. So we we have Cubby to thank for the howit in I'm Scotland. I'm so, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. It's his influence, really. That
0: was so. if you chat a bit about? I suppose you and your claiming of Cubby because I think from talking to you in the office, I always think that you Cubby and. Gary Latter.
1: I think the true time, the, tip, the bit you're talking about, you know, in the sort of late 80s, mid to late 80s, was when Cubby and Gary and I were living in a garage, <laughs> a converted garage. A the theme about living
0: in kind of like shoddy accommodation and all these things. Yeah,
1: stories. we didn't have a lot of money, you know. <laughs> um, it was actually, Paul Moores ran uh, an outdoor shop in first in Glencool. And he had clients because he was a mountain guide, and the clients would stay in this converted garage that he had. So we would uh, stay in the garage, and I got to say though, the, the competitiveness was to the fore between the three of us. Yeah, that I think when you talk about that, that's
0: always what kind of strikes me is. It seems like you were all sort of quite good friends at the time, but. With this kind of like underlying, like fierce rivalry about mainly doing like new routes, I guess, like finding yeah. and cleaning.
1: Yeah, new yeah. Um, Cubby and Gary have been climbing for a year or two together on and off before I bumped into them um, and started living with them. But yeah, I mean, it Garrett Cubby was, I think, you could say Cubby, although he was competitive, he was actually really quite. Less so and and much more amenable to allowing you to have a go and you get your sort of piece of the cake. Yeah. I mean, we go and try new routes, and if he struggling and would fall off, he'd let me have a go. I wasn't climbing as well as he yeah. as was, but he let me have a bash at it, and it, it it wasn't an issue if I got up it, and he didn't. Whereas, I think Gary really he he said on numerous occasions that he wanted to be the best climber in Scotland. Yeah. And he was very competitive. So it did lead to an awful lot of arguments about routes and lines and who should do what route and uh, ethics, you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that, that kind of competition affects people in different ways a little bit.
1: Maybe yeah, it helps some people push a little bit harder. But... Yeah. Oh, God. Climbing a cubby certainly pushed my grades. Definitely. Yeah. Um I think when I moved up I was probably climbing I kinda of stagnated at E three. Scary E four five C's movies in, in North Devon. But climbing with Cubby for a year I was I was doing E six. So it definitely helped. Yeah, definitely. I mean that was a great time. Like Cubby and I was talking we were talking about it actually just a few weeks ago. And we were looking back on the time in Glen Nevis, doing all those routes, and it was like, it was Nirvana. All this rock everywhere, yeah. with no roots on it, <clears throat> you know? I was thinking, do you reckon
0: that was your most productive kind of period of rock climbing, kind of Glen Nevis?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of output, yeah, we did so many, because we were unemployed, we had loads of time. Whenever there was a, an opportunity to climb, we climbed. Although the weather was pretty horrible yeah. at times. I do remember sitting in the Onik chalets one autumn and we recorded 30 days of continuous heavy rain. It's a standard July in Fort William, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah. We were going still crazy. Could Cubby started painting. <laughs> Couldn't think of what else we could do.
0: You know against gets desperate when climbers have to find uh, yeah. hobbies like painting. Aye. Um, well, so if that was like your most productive period, like, is there any routes in particular you're most proud of that kind of came out of that?
1: Yeah, a couple, I guess. Um, in the Glen, Glen Nevis, I did a the first was it the first route, first free route on um, Steel Hut Crag, called it Lane Beaver. Um, it was slightly flawed, I mean there's no doubt about it because I rested on it, but I was trying it ground up, I was taking falls, it was E6, I thought E7 actually, but I think it's settled at E6, I'm not sure. Um, and I, you know, it was, I was really pushing my standard and it was hard for me. It was pumpy, steep, um and they, it was scary as well because you, you climbed up this slightly overhanging wall, pulled through a roof a little bit, and got this really weird little nut in. And I could only get this a hex number one, I think it was, on some on tape. And uh, you, I didn't realise, but when you're falling off, because you then undercling the roof rightwards, and when you're falling off, you were making the the uh, tape sling on the on the one runner rub up pretty roughly on this rock uh, and it was cutting through so when I finally did the moves got out right I climbed up into the crack and I was in the finishing crack and I knew it was easy yeah was probably 5b at the top I'd done all the hard stuff got a runner ring I was pretty pumped and I did not want to fall off again and I fell off <laughs> but I fell off on the runner not the one down the bottom, yeah, and I just got straight back on and then climbed to the top. And then when I had over to collect the gear, um, it had cut through the one that down the bottom, so one side had cut through completely, yeah, and the other one was frayed so much. If I'd taken another big swing, I think it would have snapped. And that kind of what was like. Oh, geez, that was close. Yeah. Yeah. That actually, so an, an all, another
0: question I was going to ask you that related to that was, is there any routes where you feel like you crossed the line between risk and reward? Like where maybe like the the outcome of doing the route wasn't worth how dangerous it was. It sounds like maybe, that was like an unintentional one I guess. unintentional, yeah. You didn't actually know you'd... You you did not know you'd done it. But. No, no, I was, <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I was oblivious to it at the time.
0: But is there any, like I suppose, not intentional, but routes where you got on and ended up being...
1: Yeah, two I, I can think of. Right, let's, let's hear it, I want to hear them. <laughs> okay, first one, I went up to do the second ascent, I thought second ascent um, of a big E5, E6 on the bend, um, next to Titan's Wall. Agrippa? No. Agri- yeah, Agrippa. Is Agrippa? Yeah. Um, didn't know a lot about it. And the description was a bit terse, um, but I knew Pete Williams had done it, and he had found it hard. So Pete Williams found it hard; it's going to be hard. Um, so I did the first pitch. I was climbing with Alan Moist, so I got I got to climb more pitches. So I did the first pitch it was easy, and then went up, and uh, you go up to this block, get a sling around the block. Very really, really poor. It's not that great, and then you pull up into this bulging wall and you, you swing round left up round the erect right and go up a little groove and it mentioned a runner I could not get the runner in um I just wasn't tall enough I couldn't get the height to put it in so I stacked wires together oh yeah and linked them Classic together trek. trying to get this runner in I couldn't get it and I thought well I'm I'm sure I'm on the hard bit and if I go around the corner it'll all be over. So I'd just go around the corner. So I swung around the arret, the pulled into this space of this little leaning groove. That's where the crux
0: is. Oh, no. <laughs> Without the
1: wire. <laughs> Without the wire, which if you get the wire in, you're kind of, it's round the corner, but you're level with it. Yeah. When you're doing the hard moves. Um, I couldn't get anything in this little groove. So I did the moves up the groove, which was 6B. My last runner was way down next to the belay on that block. I would have gone for miles. Really would have gone a long way. Um, I pulled out the ledge and I was sick. (laughs) I was physically sick. I retched on the ledge. I was so frightened.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you think... I suppose it was two ways. Do you think that... Do you think that made you climb better or worse knowing that... I suppose it's almost if not a death fall, like a pretty serious fall? Or do you think if it, in that case, it was maybe just luck he got to the top? Or was it kind of laser-like focus of not wanting to fall off that got you there?
1: Um, When I did the moves, I didn't feel frightened. So I, I must have zoned in. I must have gone into that sort of kind of, thing you have in your mind where everything switches off and you just have to claim the moves yeah and i did that but it, when i popped out the top perhaps it was the adrenaline yeah came surging through and made me feel sick yeah um but yeah i i mean the other example is perhaps a little more like it because i was Chariscuro and glenn nevis which came a few years a couple of years later um i cleaned it off i've up- sailed over and cleaned it checked the line out and then I didn't get back to climb it for about, I don't know, eight eight months. But I knew it'd be clean, so I just went straight to the bottom with Andy Nelson, believe me. And uh, had a go at it. And I got up the bottom wall, which I th- I remember thinking at the time would be the crux. And it was, it was desperately hard for me. It was steep and fingery and yeah, yeah. finger little cracks. But gear in it. But I didn't I <laughs> I didn't really realise that the upper section was so necky. So I got really high up near the top, about 90 foot up. I got a tiny little wire, RP2, slightly in, in a horizontal crack, sticking out horizontally yeah. round the arete. Um, pulled over, trying to slap over the top like, onto these little rounded ripples to make the final moves and popped off because they were dirty. Uh, that run held. Every single other runner just popped out, um, down to the halfway mark. So if that had pulled, I would have hit the deck, without no doubt. Definitely hit the deck. So um, I came, came down, had a bit of a shake. I didn't really want to do it, but I wanted to do it. <laughs> you got this overriding impulse that you've got to climb. Yeah. So I went back up, replaced the gear as I climbed back up. Flipped the, the little RP, fell off again. Um, same thing happened. <laughs> yeah. But this time I swung in, I like slapped in, and uh, I hit the edge of this little overlap with my ribs. Rather than trying, I didn't manage to brace myself and my feet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so really painful. So I lowered to the deck again, pulled the ropes down, um, had a breather. So that's how we did things back then. You know, if you fell off, you pulled the ropes down. started yeah. again. Um. And then I went round the top and abbed over and realised that the top holes were pretty dirty. So I just brushed them all off, came back round and then did it. And then when Andy followed, that little RP that had held me had fallen out by the time he got to it. So, I mean, it, it lay unrepeated for a long time. Dave McLeod finally did it at C7. But so that's probably one of my hardest routes and probably one of the most scary. Yeah. I was frightened. I was definitely frightened on those, the first two attempts on it. But when I actually did it, I definitely went into the zone. So I, I kind of knew that the holds at the top were clean. I had a pretty good chance of doing it, and I just zoned. Um, and I, I don't actually remember doing the moves at the top. I just found myself at the top. Yeah. Uh, everything went quiet. I remember that actually, it was quite weird. Everything went quiet. And then when I got to the top and I sat down, everything started up. You know, I could hear the birdsong and the, the river down below. And...
0: Maybe every, everything in Glen, every one and every bee in Glen Nevis was just kind of like collectively holding his breath. Yeah. For a, a Kevin <laughs> Howard out to plummet down there. <laughs> yeah, to
1: deck it. <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I definitely think going in, you know, I've talked to other people about it. You know, Mark McGowan's had moments when he's been in the zone and McGeek's had them as well, I think. And, you know, you they're very rare when you just get to that point where you know if you make a mistake, you've had it. But you're in the zone and you, your body seems to do it.
0: Yeah. Kind of totally. That's kind of what everyone tries to get into, isn't it? It's like the flow state is what sometimes maybe it gets called by its proper name. Yeah. But- if it's too hard, you can It needs to be like that perfect level of difficulty, doesn't it? Yeah. It can't be so hard that you're terrified, but it can be so easy that you can think quite a lot whilst you're climbing. Yeah. So you have to find this perfect kind of middle ground.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was climbing well. You know, I've done lots of sixes and Wales and uh, in Scotland, I knew I had a pretty good idea I could do it. Um, I felt like I was capable. It's just getting my head around it.
0: Do you think part of it was like that, the, the push to want to do it was that kind of competitiveness with like, not necessarily Gary Latter and Cubby, but just in general of wanting to get like the first ascent of hard new routes.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was obsessed with new rooting by then. Um, I'd go and repeat stuff, but I just found them a little, you know, they were okay, they were good fun, but it was a bit like fun, you know, that it had been done by numerous other people. Yeah. Although getting a good second ascent was really good. Yeah, I was really into that. Um, you know, like, I think it was 1985, summer of 84, 85, I can't remember, we went into the, the Shelterstone and we did Second ascents of some of our other routes there. And that was brilliant, you know, I really, really felt good about that. Um, but yeah, doing new routes was something else. And I, I've been become a bit obsessed with new routes since, yes. really. And I've done quite a lot, so that's all I did for it. And then, you know, after that period of climbing with Cubby and Gary, I carried on climbing with other folk who were equally minded, and um, Graham Little was one, and struck up a really good friendship with Graham. Uh, And, you know, he had his little black book of all these crags that he knew about. I'd See, the guy came. that worked
0: for, like, OS Maps or something and had...
1: Yeah. He, uh, the most enviable job for any climber. I know, amazing. He toured Scotland, often by helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> and he had this list of crags everywhere. I mean, he still got it. He's, yeah. he's still got loads on that list, I'm sure. Is this, like, Andy Nisbet had the little...
0: Like, Book of Winter, climbing crags, didn't he, that were all hidden. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, Graham was awesome, now, yeah. I mean, you know, he was just... He was into adventure. He was, he was into just going out there and trying stuff. Um, and it was brilliant. We were able to go all over the place, so... Did tons of heroes, like, you know... Or stuff at uh, Kintyre. Yeah, that was because of Graham. Um and his motivation, and the Outer Hebrides as well, all the Bishop Isle stuff, and Mingale, Pabby. I
0: yeah. suppose so, you're like pretty strongly associated with, like, yeah, Mink the, um, what are they called, Mingle, yeah. uh, Barra, uh, not Barra, see. Sandry, and Pabby, Yeah, like a lot of the development there was kind of by you and a lot of other folk. What kind of drew you to the islands in particular? Like, what made them kind of different to new routing on the mainland?
1: Um, I think it's growing up and doing all my initial climbing on sea cliffs in Devon and Cornwall. Yeah. I just love sea cliffs. I love climbing above the sea. I'm particularly above a big sea, running. Really. Yeah. You know, when it's all big scary things happening down below. I love it. I, it just adds to the atmosphere and it's the atmosphere of the climb that I like more than the actual technical difficulty. Yeah. Because uh, I'm not that strong. I never have been. So I can't go off and do these, you know... Really hard, pumpy, strenuous, technical roots that's not, not my forty, um but I like the whole ambience of the thing, so going out to the Hebrides was obvious, yeah, and, you know, and I've been to Lewis before, um and I had done some stuff on the Isle Lewis. and it but it was, it was when Graham said there's a big crag on Lee, let's go and do it, and that was the start of it, um uh, that was. God, when was that? 94. And I've been back every year since.
0: Has there ever been a year since then you've not been to the islands? I
1: don't think so. Might have been one year I missed. It's not bad going in, what, 20, 24 yeah. years, 23 years. There's, there was times when I went out and I stayed there three weeks. There was, there was one time I went to Sandre, Pabby, and Mingley. One over, after the other. One after the other <laughs> in a three-week period. With claiming climbing with different people. So as they went back off, back home I would stay on one of the islands and get picked up when they were coming back up, and we'd go to the next island
0: you're like the perma the hobbit on a yeah <laughs> the island the
1: hobbit of the yes it is have you ever spent time totally alone with nobody else anywhere near you that's when people go crazy though isn't it either <laughs> I was on Sandry and I was climbing with um, it, was, it was with Graham and uh, Big Gordon Gordy Lennox and uh, we had a great time, did loads of some good new routes, did the first new big new routes on, on Sandre, the E5s and stuff, really enjoyed it. They went away, and I stayed on my own um, and Tim Rankin was coming out and I was on my own for three days before I was getting picked up and then we were getting transported down to Pavia and I was on my own, the weather wasn't very good. Um, I was wandering around wanting to climb, but I was on my own. (laughs) I still learned some easy stuff. Um, But, I don't know, it was quite scary. It's the first time I've ever been utterly alone, with no contact and no possible contact with any other human. Um, I reckon people need to do that every every now and then.
0: Yeah.
1: They should do it. I'd like to do it again, actually. I would quite happily go back out to Sandra and spend some time on my own there. Definitely. But when the weather's bad, it's not so great. Yeah.
0: Is that when you start making friends of sheep and <laughs> drawing faces with beach balls? And... Yes, I.
1: I do, I do think I was talking to myself quite a lot, actually. Have discussions about ethics and things, probably. <laughs> You've never been quite the same since that. Yeah. <laughs> no, really <laughs> not. Oh. I guess, actually, A thing that sums that up is our first visit to Mingley. So when Graham and I went down to Stron on Dunmingley, I had no idea what was down there. So we looked over, it's, it's a 300-foot cliff. It's a, and it was a raging sea, it was dreek weather, it wasn't, it wasn't nice and sunny and, you know, conducive to a, having a good, easy time. We chucked the rope over, I abbed over, and then found myself sort of dangling above a sea cave type place, and the rope was in the... In the sea, being washed around, and so I swung in, took a billet. We reorganized. Graham came down, and climbed out again, then reorganized, went down, and it we managed to do a, the first route. Sula, uh, no, the silky. Okay, yeah. So, e three. Um, so it was great, and then we sat at the top drinking, and it was like, do we want to go down again? Because we've actually only got tomorrow, and then we're going you know, getting picked up by the boat and we're going off again. We should go back again. I remember sitting at the top, we were talking about this, you know, weather is not very nice. Do you think we should go down? Um And we couldn't actually get to the slabs at the bottom on the first time because it was being wave washed. So we chucked the roof over again and had a look over and the sort of slabs were clear of sea by then. The tide had gone out a wee bit. So we just decided to go back down again. So that's a good example, isn't it? I mean, we, we were. The whole thing was a little fraught first time round. Yeah. But, but we convinced ourselves it'd be alright to go down and have another go. You know? But we did um, Voyage of Faith, which is like one of the, the most sought after routes. Was that because you went down for a last route as well? Yeah. Was that the first descent of it? Or? Yeah. Oh,
0: well. Worth it. I like, I've definitely been in that position before and it's almost kind of like a game of chicken if you're climbing partner <laughs> where neither of you wants to kind of admit that you're a bit scared and you don't want to go back down. That's exactly it. Well, <laughs> you both just end up doing it because you're not going to back down. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There was partly up the Voyager Faith where the massive big beetling roofs above you it was getting a little bit damp, drizzly and it's like, oh, jeez, you know. And we couldn't abseil off because we'd, we'd abseil into the sea from there. Yeah. It was like, oh, geez, we're, we're in a sticky situation here. So it was a matter of, hmm. <laughs> but we didn't want to, I, I certainly wasn't going to own up to Graham that I was a bit nervous about where we were. Yeah. Because that would freak him out, which would then freak me out more. Yeah, yeah. You know, be a thing. Yeah, didn't want to do that. <laughs> but I mean, there was other times like, um, you know, we went into the big cliff on Burnery. Um, I mean, that's, what, 700 foot high, that cliff? So we abbed into that, but we got the abseil wrong. <laughs> so I had a total epic doing the abseil where I had to do all sorts of shenanigans to it because it was too short by about, I don't know, 20 metres, 15 yeah. metres. So I had to do all sorts of stuff to manage to get back, get down onto the ledge. The guys came down. We let go of the rope. The rope shot out into space a bit. And it was like, ooh, right. We well, were sort of committed. But it was sunny. You know, the weather was lovely. Yeah. We had a, another team with us. We were climbing that with always It helps a bit,
0: doesn't it? If there's someone else close by, you don't feel
1: quite as... Yeah, definitely. edge. Yeah. I was climbing with uh, Hugh Harris then. And Graham was climbing with um, Malcolm from uh, Alien Rock. And so we were climbing parallel... A good distance apart but parallel, so there was a bit of banter going on. You could see each other clearly, and it, it felt a lot more meanable. But it, I mean, the route was way harder. I was E5, so we didn't know what was coming. And it didn't help when Malcolm fell off a roof when him, half the roof fell off with him, <laughs> which
0: scared it Sound <laughs> that other the yeah. route
1: they were doing, yeah. Um, and that happened like it was, I don't know. 15, 20 feet away over there, came flying off. I heard this scream and then this massive boulder crashing into the base of the cliff and spraying everywhere and all the smell of cordite, you know, and sulfur yeah. Smell of dead birds everywhere. <laughs> We've wiped out a whole lot of seagulls. And uh, it was like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> it's quite serious, yeah? yeah.
0: Yeah. You can never forget it. Like, yeah, it's not... If it's a new route in places like Burnery as well, it's like like no one has ever touched that rock before. No. <laughs> so yeah, you don't know how well attached it's going to be.
1: Yeah. Um Yeah, but I, I, I was less frightened doing that though. Yeah. Than I wasn't going in those first times doing easier routes with Graham, on uh, on Dumplingly because it, the conditions, the ambience of the whole place was all very forbid, forbidding. Yeah. Yeah. I'm
0: glad abseil stories are a bit of a common occurrence with uh, you, Kev, because mm. if you remember the first time you and you climbed together, it <laughs> was in Mingley, and we I'm sure we'd walked in and we were talking about cairns in the top of the crags at Mingley and how they're all useless and they're not very helpful. Oh, yeah. Mm. And then we got to the top and didn't know where to ab down, and we found a cairn and thought, oh, that must be it. And I think we just abbed directly down. And this is my first ab in Mingley as well. and oh, e- Everyone remembers their first ab abseil on the islands because mm. about five billion rope protectors and a 150-metre abseil into the abyss. Set up by Kevin Howitt originally on one nut and nothing else, <laughs> which had to be backed up. Um,
1: yeah, I don't know why people are so, so concerned with that because I've always... If you get one good nut in, why do you need another one? It is true, isn't it? You don't really need more than one, but it's just... It's when you're
0: leaning back in one nut, uh, if part of your heart doesn't sink, then something something's wrong with you.
1: You know what? When I was when I was at XA Uni, I was climbing with a guy called Paul Newman. um, Not the Paul Newman. And uh, we, he bailed on a route on Chudley. It was an E1 at the time, and he was struggling on it. And he put this crappy little runner in. And uh, he said, this is really bad, this runner, but I'm not going to lose all the rest of my kit, so... I'm going to lower on it. Just be really careful. I said, well, just back it up. You went, nah, nah. I'm not losing more kit. My life isn't worth more than one runner. That,
0: like, epitomises the stinginess of climbers. When, like, a 10-pound nut is worth more than, like, broken legs. <laughs> yeah. Legs legs will heal. I'll never get 10 pounds back get again. get a 10-pound back again, no. Yeah.
1: Anyway, you didn't die, did you? I didn't die. No, we, well, we ended
0: up, we ab down into the wrong... Bit, and we did. Well, we did a new route Or we did. um It was that we did like two new pitches into. Yeah. Like an, a, it was a different start to an existing route, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that was good. Too. Yeah, that ended up oh. quite
0: well for us. Uh, yeah. Having down into the wrong
1: place. Yeah. Well, I've done that a lot though. I mean, if you're exploring on sea you can't see into them. You're gonna go in the wrong place sometimes. Um, I think that's why I like it, actually the total commitment to it is really good. I was on Lundy years and years ago um, climbing with Hugh Harris again and uh, no sorry, sorry I was climbing with a friend from the Exeter Uni Club and uh, we abseiled into this it was a route that had been climbed before it had been described it was given this really weird grade which we'd never come across at the time um, which was uh E3 5A so technically quite easy but is there someone that like shoots an air rifle at you when you climb it or something <laughs> or? well we didn't know what the E3 was for I mean it could be that it was sustained yeah was it because it was necky if it was necky it didn't matter because we could climb the 5A no trouble so we thought we'd go in and have a look at it anyway because it looked good you could see it from the other side so we got added to this thing and uh, my mate belayed on these big sea wash boulders, and I got on, got into this, and started going up, started going up this uh, groove and things, and I realised it was because it was horrendously loose and unprotected,
0: <laughs> like the cleft is falling down sort of scale yeah, rather than <laughs>
1: it's like really really loose. <laughs> it was just gravel, overhanging gravel. Um, I can't remember the name now. Um, Probably doesn't exist anymore,
0: so. No, it might
1: have fallen down. Something like the purple people eater, think like it was called. <laughs> Pretty apt name. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, um, or it might have been half man, half hobnob, <laughs> which I thought was a fantastic then. Um, anyway, uh, so I'm trying to get up this thing when the waves, because you know it's in the Bristol Channel, so the tide comes in really fast. It's quite big. And uh, the waves were coming in. It was, uh, my, my mate was uh, Jeremy and he, the waves were coming up out of these boulders, because they were massive boulders, you know, the size of cars. And uh, the water would be coming up from underneath. And I looked down, and I'm trying to fidd- in gear, and I'm pulling off bits of rock and looking down at Jeremy. <laughs> and the water came out from underneath him and went up to his chest. <laughs> and then went down again and he started shouting... Get up, get up, get up, move on, get a move on. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So I'm trying to climb up a bit faster. And then I heard him scream. And I looked down. And this wave, some water just came from up underneath him. Came up. As it reached his head, a wave came over the top of his head. He got completely glubbed.
0: Uh, so I was just about to ask you. Was this also where glubbing came from?
1: Yes, yeah, glubbing came from that period.
0: So what is the definition of glubbing then?
1: Uh, To be glubbed. To be glubbed? Yeah. The idea is... (laughs) The idea is to sort of uh, experience the sea and the power of the sea. So there's a grading system of glubbing, G1 to G4, I think it was. Okay. G4 was the highest. G1 was where um and if this was a badge of honor to see who could get a g4 or a <laughs> g3 um so you, you just get sprayed by a you know big wave it comes in and gives you a good spraying yeah but there's, there's no bulk of water in it okay so that's a g1 g2 is where the bulk of water comes in and sort of lands on top of you and you you know you, you're sort of covered in water
0: but you're not like weightless in the ocean no
1: no okay G3 is where it comes in and it completely goes above your head and you're completely underwater. <laughs> you know. Uh, and then it goes out. And then G4... I, th- I can't remember who made this up. It might have been Is G4 like you die? Or well, you get G4, swept out of sea? You get swept out to sea and die. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone achieved a G4? I don't know. Have you, did you manage to get a G3? Oh yeah, several killed. <laughs> Actually, funny enough, the worst one, the G3... Bad one we had was uh, at uh, Swanage.
0: No, is that not meant to be quite like a um, like seafish cliff? Yeah, meant to be.
1: Yeah, it was at uh, Ledge, Ledges, I think they're called. And we, I was with Paul Newman again, another member of the Exeter Uni Club, and he was traversing along the base trying to find a line, a new route. And he saw this lovely route up to a roof. So we'd be laid underneath it, I put a, a runner in. Paul went up and he was coming through the roof at the top. Glorious sunny day. When I'm looking out at scene, I'm thinking that's a bit odd. Those waves of so going up and down a bit higher. And then it came in, splashed my feet. Semi G one, you know, <laughs> getting a club. And then uh, the next one went higher than the, the, the horizon, came in and splashed right across me. And I was like, Yeah, G two <laughs> <laughs> And then I looked back out again a few minutes, a few seconds later. And then this big thing started coming in, so I put in a couple of runners more. Incoming G4. Yeah, it looked like it was going to be... <laughs> and I'm shouting at Paul, you know, Paul, Paul, look, look! And I just remember looking out to sea and just seeing this black mass come right over my head and I was just sort of swirled around and <laughs> bashed against the rocks and completely... I mean, I, it was like being a washing machine. <laughs> And then it went out. The water went away, and it sucked down. And I couldn't breathe. It almost seemed like there was no air. Yeah. So I'm going, like, I was trying to breathe, and I was freezing cold because it's the sea, North yeah. Sea. It's cold, and um, and also I'd noticed that the, there was a heavy weight on the rope, and luckily I'd held on to it, and then the the wave just settled, completely settled, and I looked up, and it hit Paul. The wave had actually hit Paul, sixty feet above me.
0: Is that a G five? So Belier are dead and also Climber. <laughs> <taking>
1: <laughs> it was bloody close. That that was the, the biggest one I've been in. And that was right. on this lovely little nondescript sea cliff in swanage
0: That is the the answer we wanted in the podcast. To find <laughs> out what gloving is.
1: Where did gloving, where did the word come from? Club? I think it's something I was doing the rounds in the southwest. It's just a bit of
0: onomatopoeia kind of sounds a bit like what happens when you get hit by a wave
1: glubbed glubbed I know the guys I think it was probably some of the guys from Bristol yeah who made it up I do know there was one lad in Bristol who used to take it to extremes he used to solo down it is said naked with a harness on and he used to sort of tie himself to the base of a cliff to get glubbed (laughs) It just sounds a bit like, you know, like masochistic. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, that's it. We just need the end of there. Yeah. I suppose the other thing I was going to ask was because you talked about the like ground up was kind of how stuff got done in your day, mm. and I so I was going to go into the UKC Books to get a proper set of data for this question because I'm mm. interested to know, but the UKC logbook was down this morning. Do you think that the standard of ground-up trad climbing has went down since, like, the 80s and 90s?
1: Hmm. What's yeah. your kind of
0: take on that? Because I kind of think that people that are good at ground-up trad climbing have pushed it harder than it ever has been pushed before, but in general there's a lot less people overall mm-hmm. trying ground-up stuff at a lower grade. So, like you've got Dave McLeod and others who are really pushing the limits of the harder stuff, maybe yeah. harder than was pushed before, but, like, most average people, or people climbing mid-E grades, maybe their level of ground-up climbing isn't as high as it was back in the like the heyday of the 80s. What yeah. do you think, though?
1: Interestingly, um, I don't know. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt people pushing the, the grades at E9, E10, E11, or whatever, they're all doing it at point. Nobody's doing that kind of grade, ground-up. Um e seven, e eight has been done ground up with a bit of practice by few people, like two maybe in Britain.
0: Uh, James McAfee's done. Caff
1: is probably the main person. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There was a, a post, a, a Facebook thing, and it got into a discussion just recently, actually, about all this, about what was good ethics. Yeah, and it. it turned into this whole idea of, you know, has. have people got better in terms of trad, ground-up, adventure climbing or worse? And um, I was of the impression that there were more people back then doing ground-up. Okay, they were falling off on occasion, but then lowering down, pulling the ropes and having another go, which is really hard. Yeah. It's a really hard way of getting up a route.
0: I think it's scary, like, like, it's like you're talking about in the Glen Nevis route. I think once you've fallen off on a scary or bold route, then trying to get psyched up to go for it again hmm. without knowing what it, the the higher bit is going to be like is pretty scary. Yeah. As opposed to head pointing where you know if you get there, like, it's going to be easy climbing or there's a runner or something.
1: Yeah. And it, I mean, on site it's different as well if you've never had a look at it at all it's even worse and something like 60% of the routes I've done ever done are are on site that includes E6s so that's that's near my limit Yeah, E7 is my limit (coughs) Um, but yeah the discussion moved on and and how many people are actually claiming that sort of grid E7, E8s nowadays which you'd think they would be doing ground up or even on site and basically very very few yeah um, virtually everybody is, when they get to a certain standard, start top up in the head pointing. Yeah.
0: I think beyond E5, things with like E6 and above, that is quite unusual to see people doing it ground up.
1: See, that's quite sad, because I think in the 80s, most, I would say most of the people I knew, climbing at that sort of grade, even E5 grades, if they were trying E6s, they were doing them ground up or on site. Uh, if you don't get that nowadays, that's really sad. Do you think, it is it because, like, I suppose my
0: generation of climbers is more risk-averse, or do you think it's just because, like, you reach, like, a kind of, almost, like, a ceiling of boldness in your generation, and to push it even harder would just be, like, borderline suicidal for most people. So, like, trying to ground up an E9 is, like, every time you do it is a life-and-death decision. Whereas E5, like... Maybe it's not going to be as likely that the climbing will be hard at the same time as the runner is really bad all the time. Like, you might get it occasionally, but not mm-hmm. on every single route.
1: I've done any 5-5c's, five, five, though. You wouldn't want to fall off them. Yeah. You know? And, okay, 5c might be chicken feed nowadays, but put your 50 foot out on a on 5c moves from a runner. Yeah. You know, it's a different kind of fish, isn't it? I do think people have become pretty soft.
0: So yeah, you reckon it's just like the, the mentality has changed a little bit. In people?
1: Yeah, because head pointing has become like the norm. So head pointing, well, look at it this way: um, hand dogging and stuff like that, and and practicing was only the sort of thing that the people at the top pushing grades ever did. But then it became commonplace. Head pointing is is only the. It was only the people pushing the grades like Dave McLeod and others. Um, but then people sort of probably think well, if they can do it, I can do it at my grade. I can go and do... If I'm climbing E5, I can go and do an E6 by head-pointing it. You know? Why can't I? Because they're doing it at higher grades at their grade. And it, you know, you can't argue against that, can you? Ethically. Um, but I think it's bad. <laughs> I think you know, you can pick your route, um, especially if you're just repeating routes that are already recorded. You know, um, if you want to go and, and repeat like a, a Necky E6 and you're climbing E6, try and do it on site. I think you should do. I think it's bad if everyone just decides to top rope. Um, yeah, I think there's quite a few people feel that top, that's the older guard, my age and it maybe maybe's the a little bit old younger than me probably despair at the fact that people will resort to top roping first rather than just going and giving it a go do you think is that almost kind of like I'm not sure I 100% agree and I wonder if a
0: lot of that is just born out of like the competitiveness between climbers in those days where I think because style really mattered back then because it's almost like a climbing comp where mm. you, you can't compare someone on sighting versus red pointing, it's totally different. So top climbers compared themselves by on sighting routes. Yeah. Or I suppose nowadays it's more, as long as people aren't actually damaging the rock somehow, and they're being respectful in that way, I suppose it doesn't really matter if someone top ropes like an E1. No. Or whatever. I'm going to straight up say as well that when I started climbing, I top roped VSs. I technically head pointed VSs and then led them afterwards. And it's funny looking back at it now because I've climbed harder since. But I think I actually got a lot better at climbing through doing that because it, it opened up that grade to me and made me realise it was possible.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it. climbing's whatever you want it to be individually. Yeah. If somebody wants to go and top rope a route before they lead it, it's up to them. Um, but they can't, in my mind, they can't turn around and say they've done the route. I think in order to... You've know, done the route properly. In order to do the route properly, you've got to go on site. That's the best of the ethics. Yeah. You, you walk to the base, you don't have any... Very little information about it. You might have a guidebook description. It doesn't tell you where the holds are. It doesn't tell you where the gear is. It just says, follow the line. And you climb it. That's the best. That's the top end of the style and ethics. And then there's a descending order going down from there, getting worse and worse and worse, to completely checking it out, head-pointing it, knowing exactly which runner goes exactly where. Yeah. Um, having an abseil rope right next to you as you climb it. So if you get into trouble, you've got somebody to, to help you get well, it. Well, as
0: you have a Grigri preloaded in the abseil rope so you <laughs> yes. can clip it. <laughs> exactly. Or clove hitches with runners attached yeah. onto them so you can... Ah,
1: well, I, I, you see, um, there were people in the, in North Wales when I was living there <clears throat> were doing e eight. And it looked stunning, very really impressive. And then you just go, you look at the photo, and you realize the photographer was right next to them, taking photographs of them doing the eight. If they got into trouble, grab they, their leg. They could, no, they, they, prob- they probably had stuff, re- with slings on it, you know, ready to clip in if they wanted to. Yeah,
0: reduces you know? the commitment a bit.
1: Yeah, you've got somebody right next to you, and you've got a bailout cl- close there. You know, it's quite handy. It's a different, completely different. Different couple of fish going up there on your own. Yeah. With nobody around. It's always I, oh,
0: the, the kind of eth or the personal ethics conversation comes up quite a lot. <laughs> like, I feel like I kind of almost sit squarely in the middle where, yeah, I don't mind really how people climb, it doesn't bother me that much. Um, but at the same time, like, I, I can't put it, words on it, but there's certain routes that I want to on site. Yeah. And I can't, I don't know why I want do them on-site but I just know I want to. But then I'll meet in the middle that I really want to on-site Shemin de Fer, for example,
1: yeah,
0: which is E5. But then there's other E5s which I don't care about on-siting, mm-hmm. or E6s which I don't care about on-siting, and I'd headpoint them if it would make me more likely to on-site Chemin de Fer. Oh,
1: right.
0: So, like, maybe
1: yeah.
0: headpointing an E6 in a similar style to Shim de Fer would make Shim mm-hmm. de Fer feel more achievable, so I'm more likely to try on site. Right. So, like, I'll, I'll sacrifice some routes I don't care about in order to try on site other routes.
1: Yeah.
0: So it's kind of like I've got a bit of a weird in the middle view. In that,
1: that is, I've never come across anybody with that idea. That that that's a that's that's a strategy. You've all, you've sorted for of yourself to try and help you on site things, on yeah. certain things that you hold a lot. Of.
0: But maybe someone else would want to on site something that I would headpoint. Yeah. So it's like kind of a personal thing about what routes you kind of want to do.
1: Well, that's... I mean, it, in many respects, like I said, you know, it doesn't matter, if essentially, people top rope and head point do whatever. But I think you've got to be honest, relatively honest about it. If you're not, it, you know, if you go around telling people, like, you're playing E6, when actually you only ever ever done is head point E6. Um, and I think you've got to be honest with yourself and say, well, I I haven't actually done them in the best of style. Um, I've always said that I think I'm an E5 climber because I could on-site virtually any E5 in the country. I couldn't on-site any E6. certainly not an E7. I could ground up with, in other words, with falls or whatever. Yeah. Um, But I wouldn't call myself an E7 climber, you know? i got to be honest with myself. Um, I, mean, I think it's even more important if you're doing new routes or doing second ascents. So if you're going off to do a, a second ascent of a route and the first ascent was done by a headpoint and then it gets you do it and it gets into the news under UKC that it's been repeated by you and they don't say that you've headpointed it as well. You know, I think that's a bit of a lie. I suppose it depends if you've got to do it better than the person before
0: you if you report uh, I don't know I suppose in that example if you'd reported it to UKC to kind of big yourself up I get where you're coming from but if someone maybe just happened to like say a third person just put it on the news and you didn't actually ask them to that's maybe a bit different because maybe if you wanted to headpoint it then that's fine but
1: but I always think that you've got to try and do better than the generation before you you've got to try and do a better ascent so, I mean, there's, lot, there's lots of routes around Britain, particularly Seacliffs, Gogarth is a good example. There's big arguments going on about that at the minute, uh, which were done originally with pegs. is oh, the
0: classic debate, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the rust like hell. When they first did them, they had pegs in them. They were great. you know. They, they were pretty solid. When the pegs go, they're a much different proposition. And we've got loads of crags in Scotland like that, with old
0: pegs in. Yeah, chest is quite bad for having been pegged when it was originally climbed.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the example I always think of is, is on Mingley again, it's uh, Perfect Monsters. Utterly stunning line, one of the best lines in the country. This amazing, go through a roof, this amazing diagonal groove up this wall, going through massive roofs at the top. I mean, it's just stunning. Um, And Graham Little and I both tried that on site. You know, have in, have a go at it. We failed. Um, now it's done by Twid Turner and Gary, um, Gary Latta. They did it over three days, I think it was, and they used something like five pegs or more. Um, so they put pegs in belays, they put pegs in the roots. Uh, the pegs were placed on the lead, not on an abseil, but they didn't do the whole route in one go. So they would ab into their high point each time. So the ethics of that—they got up it. But I think they, I think they, in my mind, they stole that route. They stole the line from somebody who could do it better. Um, those pegs will be rotten as hell now. You know, I just think they should have left it if they couldn't do it without pegging it, and they couldn't do it without doing it on site. They should have left that line to someone, to 10 years' time. It doesn't matter if it gets done now. If it, if it takes 10 years for someone good enough to go in there and do it, that's fine. Why it would if there's no guarantee it would ever get done? Well, you don't know that. There were, there, there's millions of routes around the world which are necky, scary, hard routes which back in the 50s and 40s people thought were unclimbable. People get better. What they're doing, gear gets better. I
0: think it's interesting as well as maybe as climbers we kind of have an assumption that like rock, like the rock is our resource and it it needs to be climbed. But maybe there's just bits of rock that like maybe those never be climbed, and maybe in the way they are, and maybe some people could argue that we shouldn't ever put pegs in them. And if if they can't actually be climbed, then we don't have like a a god-given right to actually climb that bit of rock, maybe? Yeah, that's just I be think. left for...
1: <laughs> I feel we don't have the right to, to use whatever mechanical means we we want to get up rock. Um, I mean, in an ethical point of view, that means I don't really agree with bolting and the bolting up of routes for sport climbs. And I think a lot of people feel that I, I'm totally anti-sport. But it's like a compromise I've made. I mean... I. I've done sport claims, you know, I've, I have did them back in the 70s in France and Spain. So I've always claimed sport routes, which have had bolts. And, um, I only ever put one bolt in my life in uh, northern North Wales. Regretted it, shouldn't have done it. Um, but um, <clears throat> I just, I know people wanted to do it. I know there was a massive push to have these sport routes established that it was a compromise that i saw well okay we're going to do that but i didn't want sport climbing development to take away from the adventure element of trad climbing and take away from the potential for amazingly hard scary incredible trad routes that might come 10 years down the line 20 years down the line because i see the 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 rock as as important as the environmental element of it you know bird nesting and all the rest of it rare yeah. plants the rock to me is important and I paced two pegs in my life um they both well one fell out <laughs> a sort of its own accord uh, I couldn't clip it anyway Gary Ladder had to clip it for me <laughs> he put a sling on it for me. Um, the other one was a, a RERP, which I love the name of that. So it's a
0: realised, ultimate reality piton, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, awesome name. <laughs>
1: I love that name. Typical American. It was just incredible. O- but I mean, it, it's you know, it's for a climbing. Yeah. It, it's wafer thin. It's about the size of a postage stamp with a tiny bit of tat on it. And I placed it on a, route, uh, a new route I did in Glencore. And the route's never been repeated. Um, it wouldn't have held anything it was just purely psychological I shouldn't have put it in Um, and another one I did was a route that actually Gary cleaned and he placed this tiny wee peg in it and he told me the peg was crap and it would probably fail if I fell on it so (laughs) as I set off up it I had this feeling that it was going to pull out if I fell on it it was literally that big Um, so and that fell out if it's only cold the following winter anyway. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just don't want to put pegs in. I, I think you've got to draw... For me, putting a peg in a route is admitting defeat. Um, and that's my ethic. Yeah. You know? um, I mean, there's other routes all over Britain where the people have got up them because they've put pegs in on sale. They've been minimal. And I, I thought it was really good that, um, like Joe Brown era, um, the guys then had an ethic that they would only put in one peg per pitch. And that was when they had very minimal gear. So they, had, they wanted to maintain the, the sort of the adventurous ethic. And they knew that if they had a ton of pegs and just pegged their way up these things, they could get up them. So they had that ethic. I think it's about time we had a, a similar modern ethic which basically said, leave the rock as it is, don't put the peg in, leave it for someone else. Stop being greedy.
0: I suppose we don't really place new pegs very often anymore though. The issue is more of all these old pegs and what we do with them.
1: I don't know, I can cite, I have a lot of claims in Scotland being done in <coughs> the last 10 years, which have new routes, which have got pegs in.
0: Hmm. You
1: know, It might only be one peg, yeah, two pegs. It's interesting, so something that I quite often think
0: about when it comes like the peg argument gets done to death a little bit. It yeah. seems like every second day there's an argument on Facebook. about. Yeah, yeah I'm trying to stay away from this. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a hole. But an interesting thing that I think of it is maybe a bit of a counter-argument to yours is we get quite precious about pegs and bolts and rock because that's the kind of medium we climb on but is it maybe a bit ironic that we all get so caught up about these tiny bits of metal when we think about like the enormous environmental impact we have as climbers that isn't as immediately effective as a peg and a bit of rock, but it's probably worse. So I'm thinking, like, all your climbing gear and everything is made out of the impact that has, all the pollution climbers create from driving for three hours to go to a crag and coming back. Right. Like, that's not as visible as a peg and a bit of rock, but you could probably argue that it's almost worse in terms of the overall damage to the environment. Yeah. So if you can a bit of a long-winded question, but, I mean, how do you kind of reconcile that?
1: Um, I basically, because I think I, I try and stick to the whole premise of Leave No Trace. Um, so I know I'm, I'm going to travel to the crags, but I will not leave litter behind. And I see pegs as litter. Um, I'll try and leave the minimal amount of imprint wherever I go. Um, the travel element and the, the use of the climbing kit. Um, okay, I could go soloing, which I did too. Was that me.
0: arguably naked soloing yeah. and walking to the crag? Yeah. is probably the only person that can make any claims <laughs> yeah. about being ethical in reality.
1: Yeah, true. But you, you draw your own more, uh ethics from what's what's feasible for you. You know, <coughs> I mean, I. I haven't travelled around the world on a regular basis to go climbing. I haven't, you know, been out and about. There's, there's years and years, decades go by when I don't travel in a plane. Um, I think if... Uh, I would like to hope that in the future, if I wanted to go to Australia, for instance, I might get on a boat and do it. don't know. Um, but yeah, I just try and leave trace, Um And... and And just reduce (coughs) the impact as best I can.